Good to see everyone here today on Christmas Eve. We'll be having our Christmas Eve service tonight, our candlelight service, 6, 8 o'clock. Be sure to come and, and bring your family. Also, just for Natalie, not shameless at all. Not shameless. You need to be unapologetic with that. And, uh, you know, uh, we are a blessed congregation financially. We can pay our light bill for a while. We're probably in pretty good shape if a dollar doesn't come in the plate for probably a few months. We're going to be just fine, but we need to pay this light bill. Y'all get that? The light bill. I love that. That means something to me. Let's pay our light bill, sharing the light of Jesus with our world. And so please make the most of the time we have left. Now, if you aren't able to give, you know, if you if that big bonus check's going to come in in January, we'll take it then too. It'll be all right. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Yes, it's Christmas story again. We've been doing aspects of the Christmas story the month of December. I was asked a couple weeks ago how long I've been doing this, and I told him how long I've been pastoring, preaching. And he said, well, that's a long time. I said, yes, it is. Got a long way to go, too, so look at it that way. And he said, do you ever get bored with Christmas? Hmm. Good question. Do I ever get bored with Christmas? I thought about it a moment. I didn't give a real quick answer. And I said, yes, the truth is, I do get a little bored with Christmas. But let me explain. Not with the story of Christmas. Bored with what man's done to Christmas. Born with the expectations people have of Christmas. With the day in and day out dealings we have with Christmas. But not bored with the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas is extremely important. Important if true. I mean extremely important. The story of Christmas is a miracle. The story of Christmas is a message of love. It's a message of hope. It's a message that really does define the character of God. I mean, it just shows us how much God loves us. It shows us what God orchestrated. It shows us how able he is. I mean, the story of Christmas is spectacular. All that God did to bring all those pieces together to take shape and form on that first Christmas Eve is amazing. You've got the cosmic things, the star. Amazing. You have got the angels coming and communicating the message. That's an amazing thing. You've got Herod losing his mind in those two years before Jesus went off to Egypt. And then after that. That's an amazing thing. You saw the opposition. You saw the census that the Romans wanted. And, and so Jesus... Unknowing to him, I mean, not Joseph, unknowing to him, of course, took Mary 
at not a good time. It wasn't a good time to travel. You know, about to deliver, let's take a long donkey ride. Not a good idea. But yet, the prophecies all were fulfilled there in Bethlehem. Because Micah 5.2 said, the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of David would be born in Bethlehem. Then, Bethlehem was a little bitty place. Not special by any means. It was the place of David, the place of Jesus, but there was nothing about Bethlehem that would say, aha, this is the only place it could be to bring attention to Christ. No, no, that had been Jerusalem. That had been the place, but not Bethlehem. I, I, was, I was saddened uh, this past weekend watching the news and, and in the nativity uh, place in Bethlehem, no Christmas tree this year. No visitation this year. No Christmas lights this year because of the war that's taking place in Gaza and in Israel. And it, it saddens me because it, it's, a, it's a spectacular place. Not with gold. Not with a fancy golf course. Not with anything special in any way whatsoever. But it's just a special place that in that cave that Jesus came into the world and, and so, not bored with the story of Christmas. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That's an important phrase. That's an important line in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It didn't take place in another way. It took place in this way. That's important for us to understand. Out there today, people believe that Jesus was just a man. Jesus was just a prophet. Mary and Joseph got betrothed, engaged to each other, and then they were married, and then they had Jesus. And Jesus is just a man. That's not what the story tells us. Now, Jesus was more than a prophet, more than a teacher, more than a rabbi, more than a real special person. Jesus did not become God-like when Jesus was in the world. Many people believe that when the dove ascended, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove, that that's when Jesus got a special, special anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's not true. That's not true. Jesus has always been. There's never been a time that Jesus wasn't. And so... It's really important that we let Scripture speak for itself and that we see the story of Jesus just exactly the way the Scripture lays out for us. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Spirit. This is how it happened. They were engaged. That's what betrothed means. Now, engagement was very different then than it is now. Engagement was different for the Jewish people than it is for us Gentiles or us Westerners today. And engagement means that today it means that you have the best 
engagement experience you can have, and you put it all over the social media, right? And everybody goes, oh, how wonderful, you know, they're getting married, look at yourself, all those kind of things. Back then, it was a commitment. Back then, it was very much similar to our marriage today. It was a legal binding commitment that they made when you got engaged. The Galilean engagement process and the Galilean wedding process was even different than what was taking place around Jerusalem among the Judeans. And, and what was taking place is, is it very quickly like this. There were assignments. There was responsibilities. As soon as the, 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 the wish or the desire to get married happened, the man, Joseph, would begin building the house for them. It would be on his parents' house. He would begin building a room right then. Joseph's dad had the responsibility of determining when the wedding was. So when you read in the Scripture about the coming of Christ, and when the Scripture tells us that only the Father knows, this is in keeping with the tradition of the Galilean wedding. They understood that. He had sole responsibility to decide when the wedding was. He would, he would oversee the building of the house. He would oversee the preparations that were, going, that were being made with Mary's dress, Mary's outfit, the bridesmaids, where they're going to be, how they're going to be, when it's going to take place. Now, the wedding site, uh, it was a destination wedding. Long before we have destination weddings today, the destination wedding was the city gate. Everybody got married at the city gate because that's where all the important matters happened. All right? So the, 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 the Mary's dad, he had the responsibility to make sure that they had on hand everything needed for the wedding feast. That was his job. So, there's lots of preparations taking place. A lot of preparations taking place. People in the village, people in Nazareth, they understood when Mary was fitted or when Mary's dress was sewn together. People saw her in her dress. And, and they knew that her dress was placed in a place in her house where when the call came for the wedding to happen, she would know exactly where it is, and everything that she was going to wear for her wedding would be in that place. And her bridesmaids would have their dresses ready, and, and so that at any time, almost like firemen, the bell goes off, and they go get in their fireman suit and go off to the wedding. And so no one knew. The groom doesn't know. The bride doesn't know. The, the, the groom's dad didn't tell the bride's dad when it was going to happen. The, the groom's mom didn't even know when the wedding was going to happen. So, oftentimes, a year goes by. Oftentimes, a lot of time goes by, and, and, and that dad hold, holds the most important thing in his hands, and that's the time of the wedding. When, when he looks at the heart of his son, and he sees that his, hunt, that his son has fulfilled all the responsibilities of being betrothed, of being engaged, of being committed to be the man of the family. When he knows that all the preparations have been made, 
When it all makes sense, it didn't matter if it's 2 o'clock in the morning. It didn't matter if it's 4 o'clock in the morning. It didn't matter if it's midnight. It didn't matter if it's 10 o'clock. When you see the parable of there was not enough uh, oil in the lamps of five of the bridesmaids, you understand that now, right? Because if the father of the groom says, now's the time for the wedding, and it's at 2 o'clock in the morning, word spreads like wildfire. And those bridesmaids hurry, hurriedly get their clothes on, get their lamp, and they go and light the path to the city gate. And so at some appointed time. So Joseph has been the most scrutinized guy in the village. He's scrutinized by his dad. He's scrutinized by Mary's dad. He's scrutinized by everyone in the village. Now, They've been betrothed. He had followed through. And before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Many people read the scripture and they say, because the next verse in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Some look at that scripture and say, what a fella. He loved her. He, he was not going to draw attention to her. He was going to be very quiet in the d- divorce proceedings. But legally, there was going to be a break in their commitment. Other people look at that and go, man, what a selfish dude. you got to be kidding me, dude. You're going to, you know, because she fouled up, this is what's going to happen. You haven't even asked her what took place. I mean, why in the world do you do that? But, but in the Jewish world, in the Jewish heritage, in, in, in the situation that Joseph was in. And remember, at this point, he hasn't had a whole lot of help about what to do. He hasn't shared it with anybody because he is going about this quietly. He loved her, and he did not want to publicly shame her or disgrace her. And so he resolved to divorce her quietly. I'm sure he's, you know, he's, he's confused. He's probably wondering how in the world could this have happened. You know, we were, gosh, you know, we were, we were committed to each other. Why, why would Mary do this? I'm sure it was part of his struggle that he's going through at this point. But it says in verse 20, and remember, verse 18 says, this is the way it happened. So in verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, what information is Joseph dealing with here? He's never heard of that before. How can that be? There's got to be a struggle there for him. He's never heard it, but, but, his, but the message, the message in a dream from the angel of the Lord said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary. So he, he's got to let the fear go. And, and, and you got to understand she, what her conception in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, this is the way it happened. She will bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. Now he understands that, Yeshua, the Lord is salvation. And so there's going to be a Holy Spirit conception, a different conception like none other. It's just unbelievable, this virgin birth that, that he is part of, that it's Mary, and she has conceived a son through the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and they will, he will be called the Lord's salvation. The Lord is salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. And so he's got a lot going on, Joseph did, doesn't he? A lot taking place. He's got holy conception. He's got a son who will be called Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph is going to be the earthly dad of the one that would come into the world and take away the sins of people. He would be the Messiah. He gets all this information in a dream. It had to be mind-blowing information. It had to be just information that everyone in his village is not going to understand. It's going to be information that he has got to trust completely the Lord with. He's got to move forward when nobody else moves with him. He's got to move forward when he doesn't understand himself. He has got to trust that the message that he has received is the message of the Lord. And I think that had been very difficult. And so they're going to call him Jesus, the Lord of salvation. He'll save you from the sins. A virgin birth will happen. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And, and so what does he do? And what Joseph does is, to me, an unbelievable act of obedience. It's special. It's special. I think Mary is special in her obedience, but Joseph is special also in his obedience to the Lord. It says there in verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. That's the way it happened. There's not another way to describe it. There's not a better creative way because there's not a better story out there to talk about. There's nothing there to be creative with. This is how Jesus came into the world. It's the story of Christmas. Now there's some important lessons here in the story. Man, do you see that our God uses, calls, assigns ordinary, everyday people to his work? There's nothing special about Mary and Joseph from a human point of view. They're in the family tree. Got that. Hey, it had nothing to do with that. You have nothing to do with your DNA. I have nothing to do with my DNA. Mary and Joseph in the family tree, but they had no 
They had nothing to do with that. And here God calls on them and he assigns them to what has to be the most important assignment there is, to be the dad and the mom to the Messiah. To be the dad and the mom to information, to an understanding that they would be very, very much misunderstood in their life. All the way through, Mary and Joseph are going to be misunderstood. Ordinary, everyday people, God still does that today. Another lesson we have here is this. It's not creative. It's not overly interesting. It's not, you know, lights and whistles and, and explosions. But carrying out what God wants always requires obedience from ordinary people. Obedience. Joseph simply took her as his wife and did what he was called to do. He named him Jesus. He took care of Mary. And he let the Lord work. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. I can't get over the fact that many people really work hard to do something better with the Christmas story. To make it more appealing to the masses. To make it, to make it more exciting. To make it less, quote, boring to those who think it's boring. But man, look at this story. This story, it, it's, it is very, very special, isn't it? It, it opens up avenues of spiritual understanding that otherwise we wouldn't have. This story transcends all the other stories. It's a story of life and hope and joy. You know, the this story makes a relationship with God possible. Jesus came to the world so that people just like us, ordinary everyday people, could have a true experiential relationship with God. That's usually started for most of us through what we call the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is interesting. The sinner's prayer by many people, is looked down on today. And the reason why it's looked down on, I agree with. The sinner's prayer, the sinner's prayer can become an idol. People can, can fall into the idolatry that their relationship with God is because they prayed a prayer. They did what they needed to do. They did what they were told to do, and they prayed this prayer. And their trust and their faith is in the prayer. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. But when we have the proper perspective of the sinner's prayer and we understand that it was the moment of experiencing, the moment of being introduced, the, the initial encounter with God through Christ, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Lord Jesus, 
I don't understand how you can love me when I don't measure up. I confess that I'm a sinner and I repent by turning from the way I've been living. Thank you for being with me and for me. I need you to be my Emmanuel and my Savior. Thank you for forbearing and forgiving me. Please save me from my sins and from myself. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I desire to live under your Lordship for the rest of my life. Thank you for not only being born, but for dying in my place and raising again so I can be born again. I now receive the gift of salvation and forgiveness by asking you to come into my life, making me into the person you want me to be by enabling me to bring glory to you and good to others. Give me the thrill of hope so my weary soul will rejoice in you. In the name of Emmanuel, Yeshua, who is Savior, Christ, and Lord, I ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, please come forward.